My name is Alec Crawford, and this is Stay, a podcast about sustainability, technology, artificial intelligence, and how they impact you at home, at work, and around the world. I am discussing these topics with high-profile guests to give you important information that goes much deeper than other sources. Find out answers to questions like, can artificial intelligence save the planet? And how does ESG investing affect you? We can build a better, sustainable future together. Welcome, everyone, to the Stay Sustainable podcast. And our very special guest today is Sheldon Fernandez, who is the CEO of Darwin AI. Great to be here, Alec. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to this discussion. So, Sheldon, normally what we do here is we talk a little bit about uh, people's backgrounds and they get more into, and then we'll talk more about Darwin AI later. But, um, but uh, being, a, being a Canadian and having gone to the University of Waterloo, I'd really love to hear about your uh, your experience there. Yeah, great, great question to, to start us off. So uh, just for context for your listeners, the University of Waterloo is kind of like the MIT of Canada. So it's a very engineering-focused, heavy school. And what put Waterloo on the map, uh, both in Canada but North America more generally, was their co-op program. Uh, the idea is, you know, when you begin your post-secondary education, Every four months, you're working or interning at a company. And so by the time you graduate, you know, you will have occurred or incurred rather uh, six four-month work terms. And so you have about two and a half years of working experience by that point. Uh, Bill Gates actually, you know, was one of the first, uh, let's say, prominent technologists and business leaders to really see the potential of Waterloo. And he started recruiting there in the 1990s. Uh, And so you have the situation where, the big employers, the big companies, and now it's all of them, Apple, Facebook, Google, go to Waterloo to get engineering talent. And the best engineering talent in Canada goes to Waterloo because they know the big, big firms are going to recruit there. So I started a computer engineering degree, and I'm going to date myself right away, just to be honest. Uh, I began my, my degree in 1996, and I graduated in 2001. Uh, and on the whole, I have... have virtually positive, uh, nothing but positive things to say about Waterloo. Um, you know, the caveat I would add is the uh, breakdown of male, female, uh, you know, students at that time was very skewed in one direction. So in my class, there were 101 students, 96 of whom were men. Uh, and so you, you can imagine what that might do to the social skills of a young, impressionable 18-year-old who is trying to find their way in the world. Um, and, you know, no joke, Alec, for about five years after I graduated, it was a haunting memory to go back to Waterloo and be on campus and remember those times with nothing but men, uh, you know, in the engineering labs, not knowing how to talk to the opposite sex and so forth. Now, of course, I'm married. I had two children, so I met some removed from that. Uh, but it was mixed feelings at the time, all positive in, in the grand scheme of things. But there is that caveat of I wish I'd gotten a, a well-rounded uh, Renaissance education a little bit more. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, just a, such an incredible idea, the whole, uh, you know, co-op working thing. I'm surprised more colleges don't do it. And, uh, and I'll date myself. I was a computer science. Uh, my computer science degree is from 1988. So wow. don't feel too bad. Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about your uh, first Scott boss, our mutual friend, uh, Greg Brill. 
Yeah, so fascinating story with how I met Greg Brill. Um, my second co-op term was in New York City. Now, now when, when companies recruit from Waterloo, they're international. But at that time, it was very unusual to secure a work term outside Canada. Um, and so this company, consulting company called MediaServe, who had been started by a Waterloo graduate, hence the connection to Waterloo, uh, basically recruited for, uh, you know, young consultants to go to New York City and get their Microsoft certification and basically help build financial systems and so forth. So I remember when I got that offer, I'd gotten an offer for that job, but I got a number of other offers to do like hardcore engineering work, like ATI graphics, if you remember them. In Nortel Networks, uh, but New York was such a draw card for a 20-year-old who got to live away from Canada really for the first time in New York City. And so at this company, I met a senior consultant named Greg Brill, who was a unique combination of technical capability, because Greg is very technical, but he had this artistic side that I'd never seen before in a technologist. Um, as you may know, you know, Greg's undergrad was in theater and English, and he was a superb writer. And so he brought this really improvisational theatrical element to technical presentations that really just blew me away as a 20-year-old. 20, 20 and I remember thinking, I need to make this guy my mentor. He doesn't know it yet, but he's going to mentor me. And so we bonded at MediaServe, that company. I kept in touch with him. He had written a number of books. Uh, uh, Code Notes was the term for it at the time which is like Cole's Notes, but for technical books. And uh, when he started his own company called Infusion Development, I was a co-op still looking uh, for my fourth co-op term. And me and my uh, roommate at the time, Aleem Sumani, were the first co-ops that Infusion hired. And the funny story about that is that Aleem uh, eventually became Infusion's president and really shepherded the growth, along with Greg and his wife, Deborah, um, you know, to 700 people, uh, and we had that entire journey. But meeting Greg was very, very significant for me in the early days when I was just trying to make sense of my professional makeup and capabilities. Wow! Now it's now it's time to talk a little bit about Darwin AI. So t talk a little bit about how you uh, how you founded that and uh, and what's going on today, and a little bit to our listeners about what it actually does too. Yeah, yeah, great. So. So around 2016, uh, machine learning and deep learning was just becoming a significant technology. And what caught my attention was when DeepMind created AlphaGo, that AI that beat the world champion in Go, that, Alec, wasn't supposed to happen until 2035 or even 2050 by some, you know, estimates. So when they pulled this off, I remember thinking, okay, I really need to understand the underlying technology by way, by, by, uh, in terms of how they did this. And so I started learning about deep learning. I took Jeffrey Hinton's online course and speaking about it. And around the time Infusion was going through its acquisition, uh, a former colleague reached out and said, hey, I see you talking about deep learning and, you know, entrepreneurship and, you know, the enterprise. Go have a conversation um, with this professor at Waterloo who's doing some cutting-edge work in this area. And that gentleman was Professor Alexander Wong, who's a systems uh, design professor at the university, but is also Canada's research chair in artificial intelligence. So a really special, fascinating mind. And so I met with him, I remember, on campus, and I would read his papers, and I slowly understood how special this team was along with their intellectual property. 
And I'll never forget Alec. Uh, so Infusion was, you know, being acquired. And I was thinking about like, what's my next move? What, you know, I'm going to be at the, you know, parent company for a certain period of time, but what's the next thing? And I was at lunch with uh, uh, Professor Wong or Alex, as I call him. And he just randomly said, Sheldon, do you want to be our CTO? And I paused and I said, you know, Alex, normally I would be a CTO, but I'm the least technical person amongst the people that are doing this. You guys are all deeper into the technology than I am. And he's like, well, what are you then? I'm like, well, I'm your CEO. I'm running this if you want me to do that. And the funny thing is I never had aspirations of running a, a enterprise. I just never really wanted to do that. But this was just a unique opportunity which seemed to conv- combine my love of the technology with the business acumen I'd acquired at Infusion. And, you know, four months after exiting my first, you know, entrepreneurial journey, which was about 17 years, lo and behold, I'm running a startup. And and I often joke, four months after that, my wife became pregnant with our first child. So I really had two startups. I have an artificial intelligence startup called Darwin AI and a biological intelligence startup named Max Fernandez. And of course, as you know, Alec, we just added a second a week ago to that, to that you know, fusion of, of experience. Um, but anyways, back to Darwin. So a big challenge with deep learning back in 2017, 2018, was what they were calling the transparency problem, which is now known as explainability, which is these neural networks can do fascinating things but even the designers don't understand how they reach particular decisions. So our academic team had come up with a really unique way to illuminate what we call the black box of artificial intelligence. And it was on the strength of that IP that we started the company. We got venture backed by Obvious Ventures. They're in the Bay Area. I know the capital here in Canada. And our idea was to build a commercial platform around this IP and thus surface that transparency to data scientists and developers so they could create more robust and trustworthy networks. We were doing okay with that approach in the first two years of the company. We had secured our first two big enterprise licenses at the end of 2019, early 2020. And then, of course, in March of 2020, the world turned upside down by this little thing called COVID, and the economy, you know, the world economy just flipped on its head. And what happened during that time, as relevant to our business, was discretionary spending for tooling, particularly in the AI space, really dried up for a lot of these companies that were starting to conserve their their cash flow. And so we pivoted and said, okay, a horizontal play is going to be difficult uh, because of the situation, but also because you're competing against NVIDIA, Microsoft, Amazon, all of whom are making their tooling free we didn't see the path to significant commercial growth. And so we decided to go vertical through a long series of interviews and self-reflection. We went into the area of manufacturing, specifically electronics manufacturing, and we landed in a place I wouldn't have thought of, you know, 18 months ago, which is we facilitate the visual inspection of PCBs or printed circuit boards. And so these are the little green circuit boards that go in everything from toasters to microwaves to autonomous vehicles uh, to planes. And they are a crucial part of the, you know, computerization workflow of everything, semiconductors and so forth. And it's very timely for us because, because of what is happening globally, 
there's this move to migrate a lot of that sensitive electronics manufacturing work from Asia, particularly Taiwan and China, back to North America. And so our offering is really topical and timely. And so that's what, what we're kind of doing today. That sounds awesome. So uh, Greg told me you had the chance at, at one point to move to Silicon Valley, but obviously you're still in Canada. So tell, tell me that story. Yeah, so my third co-op term was at a startup in San Jose. And uh, I'd never really been you know, out west for a significant period of time. And I enjoyed it very much. I think there's two factors of why I'm still talking to you right now from Toronto, Alec. Um, number one, I was born and raised on the East Coast, right? So I grew up in Toronto just outside. And I think maybe when you do that, you know, even though you complain about the cold and everything, like winter for me is snow. Christmas for me is snow. I'm Canadian, so we like hockey. And so even though I enjoyed being out in the Bay Area, it didn't feel like home. Uh, it just, it was too foreign. And, you know, it, I remember being in a mall in San Jose and they're, they're singing, I'm dreaming of a white winter wonderland. And it's like, you know, 86 degrees outside. Um, so I, lo- I, I loved visiting Silicon Valley, but I, I couldn't see myself settling there. And uh, many Canadians you'll find, not all of us, but a lot of us, we spend some of our formative business years, or I should say young adult years, garnering experience in the United States. But around the late 20s, early 30s, when you think about family and you think about the next phase of your life, many Canadians prefer the, how do I put this, moderation of Canadian society versus our American counterparts. And so if you can somehow figure out a way to work in the United States and get the benefits of, you know, the wonderful elements of the capitalistic system and the, you know, drive and so forth, but raise your family in Canada, that's what many of us chose to do. And that's kind of what, where I landed as well. That sounds great. I mean, pivoting now to talk a little bit about, you know, morality and customers and what customers you want to deal with and what customers you don't. I, I heard at one point your employees wanted to not do business with certain types of customers. Can you tell us that story and how it ended? Yeah, what a great question. Uh, so full disclosure, and this is available on our website. So Lockheed Martin is an investor in Darwin. And they came became an investor, I think, in 2019. And a large portion of my team at that time were academics whose first job out of school was Darwin AI. And so they had a very idyllic, idealistic viewpoint on the way business worked. And remember, it was a, it was a real point of conflict among some of our employees. And so I did an hour long presentation where I went through each of our clients that were that were not Lockheed Martin but other ones, and I showed them, hey, like if we're going to exist as a business in a capitalistic system and we're, we're for-profit, which we are, no matter who we work with is going to be non-ideal in some sense. And we, and we need to be grown up and we need to accept that. If you guys all want to take 70% pay cuts and we become a non-profit overnight, absolutely. But you guys have rent to pay. You've, you have a certain quality of life you want. You have Some of you have children. So we need to be grown up about this. And because we exist in the system, I'm not saying it's, it's ideal. I'm not even saying it's always uh, the way we would want things. Our clients are going to be doing things in some realm of their business, particularly if they're a huge business, that we would some, in, in some way find it moral, morally ob- objectionable. And I remember really having to take them through that kind of thought process 
before, you know, they, they kind of got where I was coming from. And I'll add one final point, Alec, because we, we had to address the question of working with uh, defense uh, specifically. How do we justify that to everybody? So uh, in another context, I did some work at the Montreal Institute of Genocide Studies in Montreal. And in that course, uh, we looked at um, what they term mass atrocities. So this is genocide, crimes against humanity, and so forth. And so one of the talks uh, I often give undergraduates, but I gave it to my team as well, was the role of technology in exacerbating and preventing mass atrocities. And so there's a slide I have on the Rwanda genocide of 1994. And one of the points on that slide is that I take them through the specifics of the genocide. A million people killed, 250,000 women raped, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a point in the slide that says, and the uh, North American first world community did virtually nothing, right? And when I was giving them this morality talk, I underlined the words virtually nothing. And I said, guys, what do we mean when I say virtually nothing? That's not true. There was diplomatic efforts. There was humanitarian aid. But I mean something very specific when I said the world stood by and did nothing. And one of my uh, coworkers said, you mean Sheldon using force. And I'm like, yes, I mean soldiers on the ground in Kigali preventing a genocide with the threat of force. So I'm like, guys, when we talk about working with defense, we need to appreciate, and I know it's, it's, it's a difficult discussion sometimes to have, that we enjoy a lot of the freedoms in this part of the world through defense. And so that's why, you know, we don't object working with the Lockheed Martins of this world. And it was a very frank and honest discussion. And we draw some lines and it's sensitive because, you know, some of my coworkers are from parts of the world that have been exploited, let's say, by the U.S. and Europe and so forth. So, but we had to have that honest discussion so that everybody knew where we were coming from. My only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. You know, I probably should have done it six months before uh, I let it fester a little bit. Yeah, I think that was a good move. I, it, it sounds a little bit to me like the bumper sticker, no farms equals no food. You know, no defense equals no defense. Right, <laughs> right? So, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So have you been able to acquire patents to create a mode around your business model? We have. So we have about six uh, provisionals that we filed and I think three or four non-provisionals. Um, so we try to do our best with the resources that a company our, uh, our size has to protect our intellectual property. Um, and so I would say the moat, though, is yes, it's, it's the IP, but it's how that IP combines with the know-how of the team to create an offering that is differentiated in the marketplace. And I think many entrepreneurs make the mistake of, of thinking, if I patent something, I, I'm going to forever have, you know, rights to be able to, to, you know, use it where nobody else can. And, you know, Alec, you know, when you're experienced, well, it never works that way. Like people will copy it and they'll say, yeah, sue us, go ahead. Like try to sue Samsung, for example, in court, see how that goes when you're a 30 person company. Um, but it's the fusion of that IP and that subject matter expertise and your conversations with your customers that gets you that head start in the market. And I would say uh, for that, we've been able to create what I would consider a reasonable moat that gives us a first mover advantage. Awesome. So, so speaking of uh, first mover advantage and AI, do you, do you think we've reached the limits of large language models at this point? I don't think we've reached the limits. Um, I think when it comes to language, we're nearing the limits 
But remember, there's many different other uh, uh, uses, uh, applications of LLMs and generative AI where the modality is not language, right? Um, Images and video and sounds and so forth. Um, But I think a few people have made the point, and I would agree with this, when we think about the evolution of AI to AGI, and and Alec, dare I use the word consciousness, um, there is an intrinsic limit on what a model can do with the appropriation of data, right? There just is. Um, You know, years ago, maybe five years ago, I read a really interesting uh, book on AI by a University of Toronto professor, and he drew this distinction, and it's one that I often use, between what he calls registering the world and reckoning with the world. So he says registering with the world, registering the world rather, is you know coming to some quantitative insight about the world around you. So how many birds are there in the sky? You know how many how many lions are there in the safari? And AI can do that really well. It can look at quantitative data, analyze that data, give you an output. But his point was that to understand what the what those numbers and you know conclusions mean, you have to reckon with the world that is engage the world as the world physically, right? To, it's one thing to say there are seven lions in, in this field, but AI does not know a lion is a carnivorous jungle cat that can kill you, right? A human does. So we are we. There is a limit in terms of what LLMs can do with their participation in the world. Uh, yes, if we fuse it with robotics and so forth, eventually that might be something. But in terms of LLMs themselves, there is a limit to just what they can understand um, and intuit about the world around them. So, do you think there is an intersection at some point between quantum computing and AI? Where does that land in the future? It's a great question. Um, and so quantum computing, and, and I've done a little bit of, of work in this area, what, what, you know, what often gets lost in the popular presentation of it is that quantum computing is really effective for a, a subset of computer science problems who numerical, whose numerical properties lend themselves to the type of calculations quantum computing can do. Things like factoring a number, finding something in a database, and so forth. Now, there is something called quantum machine learning, because a lot of deep learning is premised on matrix multiplication. And so there's an entire body of, you know, scholarship that is being developed, which basically says, if we had a quantum computer, what could we do from a machine learning and deep learning perspective? And it could offer tremendous speed up, right? So I can envision a world where if we get a quantum computer working, you could run ChatGPT on you know, your phone a thousand times more powerful than it would be otherwise, but we're, we're a ways from that. Um, so it, 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 there's great promise there. Um, but both on the quantum capability side and just practical quantum computing machines, like by most standards, I think we're decades away. Um, so it's, it's promising, but early. Yeah, so so switching gears a little bit to talk uh, more about family. So Shane, your brother uh, was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and and he had a job an infusion where you were working. And you know, many of us, including me, have relatives we need to help. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this my I've got two siblings. I've got my younger brother Shane and my younger sister Shannon, and. Um, Schizophrenia is normally identified in males in their early 20s. 
And so, you know, he showed the symptoms in his early 20s, and it was around his mid-20s that he got diagnosed. Um, and when we talk about schizophrenia, and I, you know, I'm going to try to do justice to, to the description, although my wife can do it a lot better because she's a psychiatrist. They're what we have, they're what we term positive symptoms, which are like hallucinations and so forth. And there's negative symptoms, which are apathy and just a general, you know, kind of um, torpor around your life and so forth. And it was really difficult for us to see my brother go through that. Um, and there's a period of time where he just needed a routine that gave him meaning, that gave him a sense of purpose and so forth. And I really have to credit Greg and my partners at Infusion who, you know, took Shane on and my brother has a wonderful personality and, um, you know, just, you know, he would do office things and data entry and helping with things. And for 10 years, uh, he worked for Infusion. And then when we got acquired uh, by Avanade, uh, he continued on there and he's still there. Um, and if you look at like how high functioning he is for somebody with his affliction, it is quite remarkable. Like he lives in a condo downtown. He goes to work every day. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, really, really lucky that uh, there was an outlet like that for him. Um, you know, and, and it's something that we constantly need to remind ourselves of, uh, you know, mental health in our society and all the progress we've made, certainly, but the progress still to be done uh, around really, you know, recognizing it as, as you know, something for all of us, um, but also helping those in need. So it's been a real journey for us as a, as a family, and I would even say as an organization, to, to have that element to our business. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think every family has a, a story like that, and, uh, and, and with a... Um, it's just great. Your brother is uh, so high functioning and able to, and continues to work. Did this give you any insights into, into AI at all? Uh, it's kind of a kind of off the wall question, yeah, but curious. It, it's such a fascinating question. It did uh, in a strange way. So one of the, the things I've spent quite a bit of time researching is really, you know, exceptionally creative individuals. And they're, they're one of the things that strikes you is particularly with writing is that a lot of writers seem to have some type of condition, so to speak, like Dostoevsky, Van Gogh, you know, they were all on the border between, to, to use a, a bad term, insanity and genius, right? And so you wonder, when it comes to AI doing truly creative things, what element of randomness or disorder or whatever, however you want to term it, do you need to make a part of the AI that is generating these things, right? Um, you know, I, I, I've spent some time studying creativity and at the highest levels, the scholars talk of meta-creativity, which is you're not just creating a new artifact in a given realm, you are creating a new realm. So you think of Picasso and Cubism and, you know, a completely different way of looking at art. You think of Einstein and the general theory of relativity and just completely reconceptualizing our understanding of space and time. Um, you wonder if to get to that level of creativity, how an AI might be able to do that if it's just only trained on data and that's going to be derivative. So there's something in that that makes me think AI is going to be limited until we somehow figure out how to bring randomness and disorder and chaos, so to speak, to its makeup or constitution. Yeah, you know, a good example is you know some people with autism, 
yes. you know, perceive the world differently and they can, uh, you know, they can see smells and smell colors right. and all kinds of, you know, different things that, you know, yeah. we can't even dream of. So you mentioned your wife is a, is a psychiatrist. Did that give you any additional insights into AI or anything you're doing at work? Yeah, great question. Um, yes, uh, definitely. And there's so many directions to take this. But, you know, I think one of the things that it's allowed me to do as a, as a leader is really bring an element of empathy into my leadership style. Um, one of the books that she recommended early in our days of I wouldn't even say dating. Maybe, maybe we were engaged at that point. Um, there's a book called Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, who is a scholar about vulnerability. Uh, and it's not something we, we think about or study often, but her uh, work focuses on vulnerability as a key indicator of authenticity of, uh, in a relationship. When you can truly be vulnerable about something with an individual you know, her claim is that is the marker of when you can really, when you really have authenticity, but it also invites somebody to be vulnerable with you. And so in a strange way, when, whenever I talk to people that are aspiring CEOs or executives, I'm like, read this book because, you know, we all want to be uh, powerful uh, or we all want to be, um, I want to say assured and, and, you know, cocksure in our leadership, but I find oftentimes saying, I don't know, guys, I don't know the answer, let's work on it together, can be very effective. So I say that element um, of vulnerability and empathy uh, is something that is certainly more pronounced in my leadership style because of my wife and her work dealing with the very vulnerable uh, elements of our you know, society. Yeah, great advice. At the end of this, I'm definitely going to uh, get some book titles oh, and yes. stuff, and oh, we'll, yes. we'll, put them in, we'll put them in the For show sure. notes. And so, so switching gears back to AI, what do you think the biggest threat from AI will be over the next 10 years? Yeah, great question. Um, so I, I think the first thing to say is like, and, and you, you, you've probably likely heard a claim similar to this before, is AI is a tool. Um, it is a very powerful tool. And just like any tool has bad actors and good actors, you're going to have the same thing with AI. I think the thing for me that is a huge challenge is misinformation and the ability of AI to propagate that that misinformation, right? So it used to be the case where, you know, one bad actor could create one bad piece of misinformation. Um, now one bad actor can create hundreds and thousands of bad pieces of misinformation and pretty soon multiple bad actors because of the ease of use of the technology can create millions of pieces of misinformation. Um, and so, you know, given the capability of large language models, I wonder about a world where the majority of text that you're reading and exposed to was not created by a human being. And what that does with our ability to engage in civic discourse, politically with one another, ideas with one another, that to me is a huge question mark and, you know, a threat when I think about it. I know people talk about, you know, AGI and, you know, and, and I do think that is something we're thinking about. I don't think it's within a decade uh, of our horizon yet. I think it's further out. I think it's coming probably in towards the end of my lifetime, I want to say, Alec, certainly my son's lifetime. But I think the biggest, the biggest one right now is how do we know it's true anymore with deep fakes and so forth? And it'll be really interesting to see the 
uh, not to invoke politics too much, I'm really fascinated to see how this might manifest itself in your upcoming 2024 election. Yeah, that's that's really my next question, which is how do you think U.S. politicians might regulate AI and, uh, you know, and over, you know, near term and again, yeah. same time frame over the next decade or so, because uh, I think we're going to see it. It's such a fascinating question because I think most of us would agree there needs to be some kind of regulation. Uh, and we see the existential risk and we, we see the possibility for this thing to go off the rails. What I don't know how to harmonize is the innovation that AI brings and the capitalistic impulse that makes, frankly, the United States great. Um, how do you balance that with the guardrails that you need to put on AI, right? How do you ask companies that have, you know, authentically good, good intentions to pause on AI and pause using it and pause innovating and pause creating uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't reduce your competitive advantage, um, you know, and it only works if everybody agrees to pause or everybody agrees to the guardrails. And other countries, we know this for a fact, China being the most prominent example, are not going to pause. So I, I, I think with, with U.S. politics, a lot of this will be, you know, frankly, politically motivated for, you know, reasons of where that can it be effective? I, I don't know. And, I, and I, I, here's the thing. I want it to be effective because I do think it, it it's worth regulating. We regulate so much for with good with good uh, you know with good intentions. I don't know how I don't know how to square the circle in this case, and I've been thinking about this for about three four months now. Yeah, I'm I'm in line with you on that. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna ask you one more personal question. We'll get to the advice section where we ask you for your advice sure. on things, and and that's. Uh, well, now that you've got two kids, you may not have been playing a lot of chess recently, but mm. what's your what's your chess ELO rating now? And maybe a professional chess player you admire yeah. or an opening you like, or give us give us some chess tips here. Okay, so it's really sad, uh, Alec, because I know so much about the history of the game and players and all that. I met a, a friend of mine who's a grandmaster actually in Canada. He was the top-ranked Canadian chess player. And in 2010, he's retired now, he beat the world number two uh, Topolov in the chess Olympiad. And when he, when he talked to me, he, he was, he was sure I was a grandmaster because I just knew so much, but I'm a relatively weak player for my knowledge. I'm like 1700 ELO. So like decent, but that's it. Um, my favorite chess player by far is Gary Kasparov. Uh, I read a book, uh, when I was a teenager called, I believe it's called mortal games. And it was written by, uh, Fred Waitskins who wrote searching for Bobby Fisher who's an exceptional writer and really has a talent for demystifying very complex concepts. And in that book, he brings you through how he meets Kasparov, but he brings you, he brings you to Kasparov's, I believe, fifth match against Natalie Karpov, who is his predecessor for the world championship in 1990. And of course, what had happened during that time is the um, revolution in the Soviet Union and the genocide that occurred in the province where Kasparov, you know, grew up. And so he paints this, I don't know, a fascinating picture of Kasparov having to play a world championship match, having lost his home and several family members like six months before. Um, but I really have a tremendous amount of respect for Kasparov's ability, first of all. I think he's the greatest of all time. Many people will claim Carlson or Fisher are, and we can have that debate. But as a humanitarian as a thinker beyond chess, 
Um, you know, he's, he's, he's my favorite player. Uh, and, uh, one of the reasons why I was drawn to chess at a, as, at a young age. Yeah. It's such an awesome game. And, uh, I, I, I think more people picked it up during COVID. So oh, that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's great for chess. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, advice now, the, the, the advice section. So how, how can a corporate and world leaders use AI for good? What are some examples around that? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways in which you, you, you've seen AI be, be used for positive purposes, you know, drug discovery, um, you know, in marginalized communities and just in it for educational purposes. Um, and so, you know, I, I would, you know, my first recommendation is pick low hanging fruit, right? Pick an area where, you know, there's an obvious place where AI can give you, let's say, an answer or do something that's repeatable. Um, one of the, you know, early examples I used to give was determining the effectiveness of drugs on animal harm, right? And whether or not, you know, a given type of drug and testing it on animals would be effective. And it's just, there's so much data, there's a very clear answer that you're looking for. And so, you know, that's an example. Um, where AI typically falls is when we have what, what are called too many confounding variables. There's just too much random, you know, noise in the system for it to predict something. The example I'll give is predicting the winner of the World Cup, uh, the FIFA World Cup. Uh, in the 2018 World Cup, they gave, you know, I think 20 different machine learning systems, all the data for every World Cup in history. None of them got the final, which was France, Croatia. How could they? Croatia, nobody picked that, right? So pick, pick an example where AI can either automate something or give you insights into something uh, that has a net benefit on humanity. Uh, and there's many, many ways to do that. So that's the recipe I would give, you know, corporate and world leaders looking to, to make a difference. Yeah, it's really interesting. Harvard just announced uh, recently that for uh, Computer Science 50, which is not their intro class, it's kind of one step above that, mm. that they plan to use an AI tutor for everyone in the class with the goal of effectively having a, you know, one-to-one, uh, you know, teacher, in quotes, yeah. <laughs> to student ratio. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know what to make of it. Like my four-year-old can manipulate the weather app on the iPhone now better than I can. Because he loves cities, he loves l- learning. Like, what what are the what's the, what's the city with the top temperature in the world, and just his ability to move, manipulate the globe and move. And he does he does a fa- and like this is intrinsic to him now. Like he, if you put a laptop in front of him, he'll try to touch the screen and manipulate it without doing the keyboard. So, you know, this is just going to become a, a part of the way we work. Yeah. So, uh, what advice would you have for an undergrad who wants to get involved in AI who's not going to Waterloo? Not going to Waterloo. Okay. Um, so first of all, be, be, become conversant in the syntax of AI, right? doesn't mean you have to study like machine learning at the PhD level, but understand how this stuff works. Um, there's a wonderful post by Stephen Wolfram, uh, who created Wolfram Afra. It's about, it's about a three, four hour read and it's about 80 pages when you print it. It's called how chat GPT works. And it is, I read it like it is a really good read for somebody to just understand the underlying mechanisms uh, by which AI can, uh, by way, you know, the latest generation of AI is working. Um, so that's, that's the first recommendation I would have. Just get that, get that base level of technical understanding because, you know, it's like learning another language almost that'll just help you. Um, you know, and the second thing I would say is um, look at examples where the implementation of AI is successful in, in, a, in, a, in a mundane way, right? Like it's easy to read about, you know, open AI and so forth and all the stuff that, 
is getting all the headlines. But where where have there been real advances like protein folding from DeepMind and so forth? Um, what are the examples we can point to of where there really is a concrete, tangible benefit uh, for AI? And then, you know, we often say that it's when you combine subject matter expertise with the technical capability where the technology can really sing. So, you know, think about problems that matter to you in the world and how you might leverage AI to do that. And let that kind of be the motivation and the seed, you know, to, to you know, begin your AI journey. Yeah, so so I used to work in investing and uh, right now there are three types of companies. Okay. Companies that will make money from AI, mm-hmm. companies that will lose, and companies that will be neutral. And every company right now, if you talk to their CEO, claims that they're going to do great because of AI. But obviously that's not true. Absolutely. Um, so what advice would you have for the CEO of an industrial company or a manufacturing company about how to use AI? Because I think those are the companies that are really having the the biggest difficulty figuring that out. Yeah, we, we, get, the, we get asked this question all the time because most of our clients are industrial companies, right? Um, begin small, right? Um, you know, begin modestly because these huge initiatives that, you know, are very grandiose in their design are often aren't effective. So choose again, low-hanging fruit. What's a problem that you have where AI can provide an obvious solution, whether it's automation, analytics, whatever it might be, Use that as a mechanism to familiarize your organization with, you know, AI and the way it really works and the surrounding ecosystem and support you're going to need to to do AI, right? Um, Yes, AI is a tool, but we've learned it's only 30, 40% of the solution for an enterprise product. There's the data, there's how you mine the data, there's the standards, there's the testing, Right. It reminds me, Alec, of, you know, and I know you'll appreciate this, of the Internet in like the mid 1990s where, OK, you could do all this wonderful stuff. But how does that affect my business? And like you just got to get the ethos and the know how in your organization in order to do that. So begin small, begin modestly, get a few big wins and then, you know, you'll have the organizational buy in to, to be a bit more ambitious. Uh, and that's what I always almost always recommend to, to business leaders. Yeah, totally makes sense. So the last five minutes or so is a section I call underrated or overrated. So I'll mention something and then ask you to tell me if you think it's underrated or overrated and then a few uh, and then uh, a brief explanation why. So first is raising a family in Toronto, underrated or overrated? Well, I live in Toronto, so of course it's underrated. There's so much wonderful things to do here in Toronto. The cuisine is excellent. We've got wonderful sports teams, although I haven't been doing that well. Uh, very underrated. I, I would recommend Canadians and even you know people not from Canada check it out. Awesome. The U.S. healthcare system Ooh. underrated or overrated? If you're wealthy, probably underrated because you get access to better uh, care than we do in Canada. If you're not, uh, probably overrated. Um, you know, I know it's difficult to get access to care there. I say this with a rudimentary knowledge of you know, the U.S. healthcare system and what I could garner from you know sicko Michael Moore's you know admittedly. Uh, provocative documentary. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I would say. But yeah, it also depends where you are. I think uh, if you're, you can be not making a lot of money, but if you have, uh, Mm. uh, state sponsored healthcare in Connecticut, you're doing okay. Anyway. So, uh, potential for professional soccer in North America, underrated or overrated? Wow. 
Now, I know Lionel Messi, who is the greatest player of all time, is going to the MLS Soccer League. I would still say it's overrated. And the reason I say that is there's just so many other North American sports that I'm a big fan of, NFL, NBA, MLB. There's only so many cycles the average fan can spend really taking a look at, right? And the top players are still in Europe. I mean, it's always going to be that way because that is the sport in Europe. So I, I'm glad it's getting traction. I know there's a huge ethnic immigrant population in the United States that loves their soccer, but anybody who's been following it for as long as I have, uh, know if you really want to watch the cream of the crop, you go to Europe to watch it. Yeah. My, my nephews used to live in Portland and they're completely soccer crazy. Yeah. Uh, IBM Watson underrated or overrated? Oh, completely overrated. Um, very sad what, what it kind of devolved into at IBM, given what they did with Watson in Jeopardy in 2011. I remember Greg Brill emailing me when, you know, beat Ken Jennings thinking, this is, this is insane. Like, this is really impressive what IBM have done. And they just kind of squandered it, didn't they? I mean, on the healthcare side, and now you don't, you, it's, it's almost a pejorative yeah, to use the term Watson in AI circles. You, you, you almost warn people, don't let this be another Watson. Uh, so very overrated. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of sad. Reminds me a little bit of, of uh, Xerox Park and, you know, hey, wow, that's a mouse. Right. That looks cool. Right. You know, right. like uh, they just weren't able to capitalize yeah. on it. Sorry, a little bit inside baseball there for our listeners. But um, <laughs> uh, Anne Rand, the author. OK, this is notable because it was Greg Brill who introduced me to Anne Rand and the Fountainhead uh, when I was in my 20s. So as a writer, underrated, brilliant writer. Uh, real, real lover prose as a thinker overrated. Um, you know, it's, uh, th there's a saying, you know, people often read the fountainhead and Lord of the Rings when they're young, you know, one has superheroes, this, then the other, the other has like hobbits, uh, you know, because when you actually step back and think about the worldview, it, it really seems, you know, inconsistent, um, you know, I, I remember reading an article on objectivism and, you know, somebody said, you know, objectivism failed for the same reason communism failed. It was a totalizing ideology, which didn't account for the imperfections uh, and vulnerabilities of human beings. Yeah. Quantum computing, underrated or overrated? Probably overrated at this point, because I think when people hear quantum computing, they think, okay, that means we're going to get machines that are a million times faster in 10 years. And as I mentioned earlier, Alec, quantum computers are, you know, useful for a very specialized class of problem that, that are an important class of problem, but a specialized class of problem. So that's say overrated. The book Chip War. So I saw that. I haven't read it. Um, and right. so I can't really comment on it. Um, I'll read it. I'll have to read it and uh, get back we'll to put you. It on, we'll put it on the list. Put it on the list, yeah. Uh, spending five hours or more a week at the gym, to underrated or overrated? Totally underrated. I can say, like, as somebody who loves the Peloton and uh, forces myself to do the workouts, just maintaining your mental health, sorry, maintaining your physical health and how that connects to your mental health, completely underrated, especially for... CEOs and business leaders who constantly feel a lot of stress. So very underrated, highly recommended. Yeah. Also apparently helps with longevity. If you go uh, see some of these, you know, doctors and professors that focus on that, they're all at the gym. <laughs> yeah. My friend started boxing recently and it's like most liberating thing for him, just punching like in terms of what it does to your cardio and, and the health and so forth. Yeah. So underrated. 
And then finally, Keanu Reeves, the actor. Underrated. Um, and I say that not because he's Canadian, but, you know, I mean, he's obviously famous for The Matrix, but he's been in a lot of other more artistic independent films where you can really see his acting chops. Um, and so I think he's actually underrated um, as, a, a, as an actor. And he's obviously he's just, he's just a really humble, really nice guy from what I can see. I mean, he was, you know, pictured taking the, the TTC here in Toronto like one day. So underrated from my perspective. Yeah, no, my sons run into him in uh, in Brooklyn. Do they? You know, acts like kind of a regular yeah, guy. So it's yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Bill and Ted's. No bodyguards or right. anything. Bill, you know, he's like, famous for Bill and Ted's. And I think he was in Hamlet, like off-Broadway. Yeah. And so, yeah I, yeah, I think he's underrated. Awesome. Well, this has been an, an awesome show. I'd like to thank Sheldon Fernandez, the CEO of Darwin AI. And uh, this has just been great. Thank you for coming on the show, Sheldon. Thank you for having me, Alec. I appreciate it. You are listening to the State Podcast. You can listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. For example, Apple Podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and comment. And you can also find us on stateblog.substack.com. Thanks. I can't do that.